Hi everyone, it's me Sophie. Today we're talking to a colleague of mine. He has just come back from Pakistan and Afghanistan and we are super interested to hear about his journey. He did do an article that we had up last week. It was about the transgender refugees, Afghani refugees that are currently seeking a, a safe haven in Pakistan. So, Oliver, thank you for joining us today and we've got some questions. We want to know all about this trip. Thank you, Soph, yeah, far away. <laughs> so first and foremost, what, what made you want to pack up, you know, your home and your bags in, in Beirut and go, I'm off to Afghanistan? Um, well, the first point was it was the biggest story. It was the story um, of the moment, you know, in, in August or September, and it was... Uh, and I, I wanted to be there. I mean, I think we all knew that, that the country was going to fall to the Taliban. I just don't think we knew it was going to happen so quickly. And I was talking to a friend who works for the LA Times and um, Nabi Bulos, who's amazing and does incredible work. And we were here in Beirut, in Lebanon, actually, we weren't in Beirut. And we were talking about it. And he said he was going and he was trying to get his visa through, I can't remember if it's Dubai or Doha. And, and I was like, wow, you know, I really want to go. And and he went, and and I, and then this sudden collapse happened. You know, the arm, the Afghan army, kind of disappeared, and you know, um, Ashraf Ghani disappeared. And so, and then I sort of watched that happening, and then I thought, and then I just thought about it. Was, it what I was really interested in was the the fallout from the fall of Kabul and the fall of Afghanistan, and I, the refugees crossing over the border into Pakistan, and how that was what the effect of everything was going to have on Pakistan. So originally I went to Pakistan and I was working there and then I just, you know, I got, I got stuck in Islamabad for a few days while I was waiting for permissions to work on the border um, at Torkham, at the border crossing between Afghanistan and Pakistan. So while I was there, I just thought, well, you know, I'm going to apply my Afghan visa, you know, just in case. And I got that relatively quickly and it was quite straightforward. Um, and then it was just a case of, I was there, you know, I was right next door. The story was happening now. And I just, I just sat in Pakistan. And I just thought, you know, I'm going to kick myself if I don't go. I'm right there. I'll look back on this and just feel such regret if I don't go. And I spoke to a few journalists, the, the amazing um, Anthony Lloyd from The Times, the kind of water correspondent for The Times. He just left. And I bumped into him and I met him in, the, in our hotel in Peshawar in Pakistan. And I asked him, you know, how's the road? how is the journey looking and how are things on the ground? And he explained what was happening in Kabul to me. And he said, you know, if you've got all your paperwork lined up and you have to get this letter from the Ministry of Information. And if you get that letter, you can show that to the Taliban and you can kind of move through, but as long as all your paperwork is in order. Um, and so, yeah, I, I sort of did that. I got all that in order. And then I think the day before I decided to cross the land border and drive to Kabul, a CNN uh, crew had been had done that. They crossed at Torkham. They were driving to Kabul and they got stopped and held up at gunpoint by the Taliban. I don't know why. I haven't heard of any other times that ha that happening. I don't know if it was a show of force or strength. I don't know if it was a kind of rogue Taliban unit. But they kind of drove them off the road, held them up at gunpoint, and then suddenly just let them go. And the Taliban drove off and CNN carried on. But I didn't know all these details before. I just heard that they'd been held up 
And so that obviously made me a bit worried, but again, I just thought I'm going to do this. And I think, you know, I was on my own. I bought like a short kameez kind of Peshawar outfit, um, the clothing, traditional clothing and scarf. And I just, I thought I, if I was on my own with my driver and my translator, it probably was better than being, you know, part of a big CNN crew. I think that's kind of an obvious target, maybe. Yeah, I think that's I think that's intimidating for some, you know, especially there is so much instability and there's so many people coming across the border. Yes, some have papers, some might not, you know, and I think because of the chaos, it would be a lot harder to control what was going on. So these little tit for tats or random experiences take place. I mean, you you're t you can say I'm used to it. I mean, you live in Beirut, you, you know, that sort of happens randomly here if you you know, go down the wrong road or end up in the wrong area. Um, I think what our guests would like to know, I mean, it's so interesting to hear your personal perspective because you were on the ground and you did some really interesting pieces. Uh, one was about the children on the border. I think we would like to, you know, if you could just elaborate on that. You know, what were you doing at the time? Did they catch your eye or did someone actually tell you about them and you went on a hunt to try and find them? Um, yeah, so Reuters had some footage um, that uh, I don't, it just looked like it was taken on a phone, a camera phone, and Reuters had put up this piece, and then, and I think the National had then used that Reuters footage and got it out there, and it got a lot of, like, views and sort of a lot of engagement. So when I was there, I contacted um, the National, you know, the UAE about, about it, and then we got into talks and then they were like, can you do a follow-up story then? And um, and so that's how that kind of happened. Uh, and they, so I went and, I mean, by trade, I do videography, but I, I wouldn't consider myself like a videographer, but I went down with my cameras and uh, with this amazing sort of young journalist uh, who was my translator as well called Tarakula. Um, and we just went there, we got permissions and we filmed these kids. And, and then literally we were standing on the Pakistan side of the border and you can see like this, this road in, there's the road into Afghanistan on which the trucks cross. And there was a queue of trucks like backed up for days. I think because of the, you know, the new Taliban takeover, the bureaucracy and the documentation that was needed and to pass was just being really held up because there wasn't like a proper government um, in Kabul. So, so there were these like queues of trucks today and that, for days and that's the first thing we saw. And then when we got there, I was thinking like, how am I gonna find these kids? How am I gonna see them? And they were just, everywhere they were there yeah and um and you'd see if you looked in the distance down down over into afghanistan down the road where the trucks were kind of getting ready to cross into pakistan you'd see these in the distance these little figures running about like climbing up under the trucks and climbing into them with these sacks on their back and their sacks are like the same size as them they're carrying a pan or cigarettes or toiletries in these sacks and and they're huge. And then, so then they would get up on, on the trucks and then the trucks would cross the border. And then once they crossed into Torkham, these little kids would kind of drop down from the inner workings, from like the underbelly of these massive, like juggernaut HGV kind of trucks and then scamper off. And some of them were actually waiting on the Pakistan side and they would wait for a truck to cross the border and then stop. And then they would run and get under and try and get further into Pakistan. Um, and as far as I could see, the Taliban uh, were not stopping this. They, they had, I guess, bigger fish to fry in their view. You know, they weren't stopping this. They were kind of turning a blind eye. But the Pakistani authorities were kind of trying to stop it. They would 
stop and you know when a truck stopped they one of the soldiers would go under and shout or like hit the stick against the truck and these kids would drop down and they would kick them out and then they would like march them back over the border or tell them to you know go and they would, these kids would run off and it and, and in a way it was some of the kids kind of found it funny some of the soldiers the frontier corps of the pakistan uh, on the pakistan side found it pretty funny but it's also like incredibly dangerous and these kids get injured and they are hiding up in the underbelly of these trucks and there's the fumes and the grease and the dust um so yeah this day and, and they've got these sacks and it is dangerous and and they and i i sort of wondered whether the pakistani authorities were making a show of kind of being on top of it and trying to stop the kids because i was there because i was there with a camera because you know my, my colleagues like Tarek, we were there like watching and documenting it so when no one's there i wonder how much you know how much this kind of yeah it's a bit like you know if a tree falls in the forest can you hear it <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> so, because i was filming it it looked like they were trying to stop it and i was there but i wonder you know if we're not there if they do that but and and there was no you know they just they would sometimes they would line all the kids up against the wall or in little um groups and they would give them like gum or sweets the Pakistan soldiers and then they would, they would just like march them back across the border or even chase so them there's somewhere. there's a relationship between the children and the border guards most likely i mean they're probably they probably know each other quite well and yeah mm. you i could see how you would think that it was a little bit of a, a, sh a song and dance shall we put it you know just because there's a camera there you know we need to be doing our job we could be reprimanded if this did go viral for some reason and there's no reason why a story like that wouldn't because as you said it is quite intense these children are risking their lives and um, them and so many others currently that's you know there's so much chaos happening over there what was the i'd like to know what was the most devastating thing that you saw and you thought i can't i don't know how to really grasp what took place here uh that's a good question um i think that was in afghanistan um, and there's a park in the, in the middle of Kabul, and I can't remember his name right now, unfortunately, and it's um, a lot of internally displaced um, people from Afghanistan, uh, maybe from the north, uh, and then some from Mazar-e-Sharif, and um, they have, because of what's happened in the Taliban takeover and some of the fighting, a lot of them have come to Kabul and are living in this park in little tents, and it's like a makeshift kind of refugee camp in the middle of this park in the middle of Kabul and it was packed and and I walked past that a lot I, I tried to do a story on on it and write about it and it has been covered by a lot of agencies and I went in uh, with a sort of I don't know how I felt about covering it and I went in and I spoke to some of the families and they just said you know how are you going to help us you know lots of lots of uh, news outlets have come in, they've made films, they've interviewed us and nothing's changed and we're not having any help. And I thought, you know, yeah, you're right. Um, I, I can get your story out there and I can try my best, but, and they just sort of said no, basically. They'd had enough, they said no. And I, I left and I, it was kind of near the hotel I was staying in. I walked past it for a lot of days. And then one day when I was quite tired, I, it's just very devastating. You know, I saw these these kids and families, you know, in, in, in their sort of, they're like camping tents, like really bad, cheap camping tents. Like they'd strung up bits of cloth to, to shield themselves from the sun. Were there any civil unions around or was this all just made and built by the civilians and the refugees? It was just 
as far as I could tell, it was just built by the refugees. And I didn't see any uh, groups or NGOs or anyone like that on the ground trying to help them. I mean, there were, I, I didn't see any in Kabul. I don't know if there are because of the Taliban takeover, because a lot of people left and those organizations are not working right now. But um, yeah, and it, 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 it was, that was tough. I cried. I walked past one afternoon and cried. Um, and I just, you know, you just, this is you know, part of the job. You kind of are exposed to this, but it's kind of shit when you feel like you're, how do you help and what can you do right now? Because there's no one on the ground and hopefully that will change as soon as possible when things are ratified by the Taliban. But Well, there's just been some breaking news that they have actually cut off, I think, or planning to cut off. I'll just say it to you. Um, electricity in Kabul. So... Um, I don't know what that means for the future. I don't know. Uh, it, it, there's not enough information right now. But um, yeah, I mean, it's it's very hard to have these conversations. And, you know, that's why we, I started off by asking you, you know, what really um, puts you on the road to Kabul at that time? Yes, it was a top story, but there was going to be so many things that you were going to have to see and digest that, you know, with that sudden urge of adrenaline where I know I need to tell this story, sometimes we don't really think, what am I going to expose myself to, you know, both mentally, physically, um, and, and what am I going to leave with? And obviously, you know, there, you leave in a way scarred and, and, and you do feel a little bit hopeless. But I guess as, as storytellers and as journalists, um, we need to put ourselves in those situations for the people, as you said, that don't have a voice, like the ones that are stuck in that park. Uh, so as times are changing, um, I think we should just go on to a bit of a more positive note. Was there anything that you saw that you thought, okay, you know what, this is, I can understand what's taken place is quite devastating. You know, none of us know what type of um, power or authority the Taliban are going to rule by or, you know, is it going to be what we saw before? Uh, is there going to be a change? How did you feel about that when you interacted with soldiers and when, when you interacted with others? I remember you did tell me that uh, there was one Taliban man that said to you, uh, I would rather be in the mountains fighting than be here on the border. So um, obviously, uh, what, how would you even digest that information? And who, who are they still fighting in the mountains? Well, yeah, I mean, I think with that case, I was when I was, when, once I'd crossed the border into Afghanistan, I was taken uh, into this office block, which was meant to be the Taliban intelligence kind of office on the border. And it and this this large overweight Taliban fighter was just lying on the sofa and he looked angry and surly and bored. And I don't think it was about any. I don't think he was fighting anyone right then. I mean, there was stuff happening in Panjir, um, the like resistance movement. But I don't think it was for him. It wasn't about fighting anyone particularly. Now he was just bored. You know, he he'd been used to fighting, and now he'd been given this sort of sort of desk job. Um, this bureaucratic kind of desk job on the border, and he, he just and he said to me, I think his literal words were like, "What is this job? I hate this job. I'm bored here. I, I yeah, I'd rather be back in the mountains fighting." And and I just thought, wow, like, what is it they say about idle hands? You know, this that's this is feels like the threads are starting to fray a bit. And and he, and in Kabul, it, the, the Taliban I spoke to were um, how do I put it? They were patient, I guess, cordial, you know, there were, and it started, the longer I was there, it felt like they were starting to get a bit annoyed with all the foreign journalists, they were starting to 
you know, lose patience. I think they were hoping that everyone was going to write really, you know, amazing reports about how great the new Taliban were. But, you know, in fact, that wasn't the case. And everyone was telling the truth that girls were not going back to school, despite boys being back at school. And despite a lot of schools in Afghanistan already being segregated, they kept saying, oh, yeah, we need to put in a framework for segregating the classes. And stuff. But how long does that take? You know? And then, so, so then, and the one Taliban, uh, sort of, he was relatively high-ranking Taliban uh, fighter or member of the Taliban who I met in this park, um, uh, was it Akbar Khan Park? Um, he said to me, you know, oh, tell, tell good stories about us, about Taliban. And I, thought, and I said to him, well, I can't, you know, I can't just lie. And you got to prove it. And I said the world was watching. And so, there, so you know, it's, it's interesting. They, they, they're there, they're new, there's a new Taliban, you know, they put, they're taking photos, they're taking selfies, they're in the zoos, in the parks, they're, they're everywhere and they are, they've got big guns and they're in the back of pickup trucks driving around and they're trying to create this new uh, sort of Afghanistan. But it looks, you know, I'd heard, we'd heard reports of infighting, you know, we'd heard reports of, and one thing that they always said was like, oh, you know, I'd say journalists have been attacked, journalists have been beaten up, or we've heard of, you know, members of Taliban going around houses, um, trying to, you know, hunt people down, despite the fact that Taliban had said, you know, there was an amnesty for everyone. Um, you know, certain religious minorities being kicked out of their homes. And their answer was always like, yeah, but that's a kind of personal dispute. That's not the Taliban. That's a, a thing between that Taliban member and that person. It's like, well, that's not really going to hold any weight. You know, you've got to be more responsible. Um, so yeah, there's a lot, as you said, like it's starting to fray. You can see where there's been a lot of red flags and it's going to take a lot of work to try and get a system working, you know, that is both functioning for the Afghanis and actually in, in direct relation functioning with the international community. So, you know, they've got a lot on their hands. I mean, as we can see, Iran struggles a lot. Pakistan has had its... Um, its way sometimes it's in sometimes it's out you know like that that part of the world you know is quite volatile there is a lot of tribal thinking uh, of dealing with things as well with how they you know an eye for an eye you did this tit for tat um things that maybe the western world would say is not civilized behavior but at the same time that's a culture that's a tradition and that's a way of handling things so instead of coming from the top and saying no you have to do things this way because we've proved it works you have to say well what is it that you th you think can work if we try to do it a different way where we're not necessarily hurting people traumatizing people torturing people killing people i mean the list goes on here i mean even if we want to go back and look at saudi arabia we can look at all the things that happened i mean obviously things still go on you know there's still a big question marks but the country has tried to find this balance with its own culture and traditions and fitting into, you know, Western society or the first world, shall we say. So there, there is proof that things like this can work. But then we have situations in Libya and stuff like that that show, you know, no, it could remain volatile for a long time. So, I mean, being on the ground is, and, and listening to your stories, it's really heartfelt you know and i think people can really understand the situation there more when they listen to what you saw and right now you're not sitting and telling me sophie everything's bad this was so awful you know you're not that that's not the discourse you know you're trying to 
to say to me, I went there with an open heart and an open mind. And I tried to take on, you know, the culture, I, I put on the clothes, I tried to feel, you know, can I relate to you? Will you talk to me? Can I really understand how you think? You know, it's a bit of a ethnographic study of what yeah, I mean, I have to say, I, you know, putting on putting on the clothes was was um, was kind of only for traveling to Kabul just to kind of not stick out. Um, but yes, I tried in those things. I tried to have an open mind. I mean, I was under no illusions about you know what the Taliban, who they are, and what they've done, and and especially recently. But uh, yeah, it was it was difficult. I mean, they did say to me, or you know, we want this to be a peaceful country. They said they wanted the Americans, the British, the Canadian like embassies to open again. They wanted people back. They, you know, they, they, they've got, they, you know, they, what they've won, they've got no one to fight, they've got no one to go up. And ISIS-K is an issue right now and is trying to really like use this sort of destabilized time uh, to, to create, you know, even more instability. And, um, but you know, like, for example, um, I wanted to go and do a story on the Afghan Institute of Music and which have been covered by other media outlets. But what I found interesting is that the Haqqani network were kind of using it as their base. And I went once and I knocked on the door and asked to have a look around and they were all just really cagey and they kind of let me look around. And I went back a second time and they were like, no, you know, you're gonna wait, wait till our commanders are back. And again, they were cagey. I went a third time and I managed to get a couple of photos of some pianos. And I wanted to, I'd heard rumors that they destroyed the instruments because they banned music. And they wouldn't show, they, they said, no, no, the, the instruments are all fine. They're just locked up in this building. So, you know, can I see, can you show me? And they wouldn't show me and they were being very cagey. And so I, what I found interesting was not so much the instruments, it was the, the, the caginess of them, the fact that the Haqqani network, you know, who are notorious for suicide bombings, um, were using that as a base. And then, so I went to the Ministry of Education and I spoke to um, one of the sort of Taliban ministers, a man called Ifram. I didn't get his last name and he looked tired and he haggard and I kept you know, asking for permission to go and to properly report on the story and see the instruments and he kept saying no he was like no why do you want to see this and I said that other outlets had done it he didn't believe me I showed him like the NPR the BBC reports and he just kept like rubbing his face and saying saying no and I, I said to him you know that the more you say no the more I want to go in and he just kept saying give us time give us time um we're gonna it's gonna open again and I thought, oh, hang on, so you're going to open the Afghan Institute of Music again, but you're going to have an orchestra or you're going to have music? He was like, yeah, yeah, those are our plans. We're going to open it again. I thought, but you've, you've banned music. How is that going to happen? Is it going to be religious music? And, and that's what we were told a lot, you know, just wait, just wait, give us another month, come back in a month. And, um, and you know, we're, we're trying, we're going to open everything up. And, and there was a lot of sort of kicking the can down the road, and especially with the girls going to university and school, the teenage girls and, um, and the older. You know, there are, there are systems in place so that girls can have education, but they kept sort of making up excuses and that's what it felt like. So I wonder, you know, they're saying stuff to appease the international community, but is that going to be implemented? I, I don't know. No, we just have to wait and see. We just have to wait and see. So I want to wrap this up, Ollie. Um, and we haven't actually discussed your latest article uh, that you did for Levant X. So uh, which was the transgender Afghan refugees that are seeking safe havens in Pakistan in Peshawar. Now, how did you come across these women? How did you get to meet them? You know, what type of struggles are they facing? And 
Has anyone spoken about this? Is there any light on them? Is there anyone trying to help? Or did you feel this was a, a bit of a lost cause? Um, well, I'd, I'd heard about that. Well, first of all, I wanted to speak to um, trans women and transgender women from Afghanistan and maybe across the border. But, you know, the community there is, has completely gone into hiding and, and, and is silent. And they, they wouldn't speak to anyone when I was trying. And, and then I was trying to speak to them on the phone before I went. And then I'd heard that five uh, transgender women had managed to leave Afghanistan across into Pakistan, but they wouldn't speak to me. They wouldn't even talk on the phone. And I was talking with uh, Tarek Gullah, the, the journalist I was working with, and, and transgender women in uh, Pakistan are kind of accepted because they, they become sort of dancers. They dance at weddings where uh, women are not allowed to dance in front of the men. And so they create this kind of entertainment and they sort of dress in these amazing elaborate dresses and they dance. And, um, and so they're kind of, it's sort of a weird, it's, it's, they're accepted and they're accepted by society, but they're still treated quite badly. And so we'd heard about this kind of home community house, safe house in Peshawar, in what is known as the Afghan colony, where a lot of the Afghan refugees live. And, um, and we went there one night and we met uh, an amazing woman named Nam Keith and she works for the International Rescue Committee. And she's sort of an activist and is pushing sort of transgender rights in, in Pakistan. And she introduced us to a, a young girl called Mina who had left uh, Afghanistan when she was about 12. And, and you know, a few of the, the women had left Afghanistan and moved to Pakistan because it's kind of, yeah, it's a safe haven, but they still, face problems there. I mean, the women told so me- So these are not recent refugees. They are Afghan refugees that are more established, that have been living there for years. Some, some, yes. The ones that I managed to uh, speak to in the flesh had been there for years. The ones who had recently crossed were still pretty scared and, and they wouldn't speak to me. They wouldn't speak to anyone as far as I'm aware. Um, so yeah, so, so Namkeen has been there for a long time and so has Mina. Yeah, Mina's been there for however long, you know, since since she was 12 and um and so and she's 19 now yeah so uh, seven years or so and uh she yeah they and they she was you know mina would say that she liked her life in pakistan she felt free and safe and she was with her sisters um is how she described it and, and that gave her a sense of security and safety she didn't miss her family you know her family kind of cut her off but unfortunately they did you know as an Afghan refugee, she, she, you have to get um, a kind of special passport or special documents from the Pakistani government. So you, do, you can get a SIM card, you can own your phone, you can, you can move about freely. And even though Mina had been there for seven years, Nankin was still trying to get that documentation and that paperwork for Mina. And, you know, they, they are subject to abuse still. Um, there have been reports, you know, Mina told me about reports of gang rapes. Uh, some of the women get stopped and have their heads head shaved and hair cut just walking down the street. Um, so, so there is this weird kind of, you know, weighing scale seesaw where on, you know, on the one hand, they are kind of accepted and they can live there. And on the other hand, these, you know, women are not given documentation, they're not given their rights and are still subject to attacks. Um, but they're safe. 
relatively compared to what happening to what, in, oh what they could be facing right now with all of the other changes that are taking place currently certainly, yeah probably in, in Kabul and Afghanistan well, everyone, if you would like to learn a little bit more, you can head to the website and read all of his articles and see the photos that he did take of these wonderful women that are trying to make a difference and fight for their rights. But Oli, I want to sort of wrap this up. I do want to remind our audience that as Levant X, we are a crowdfunded organization and we do function on donations. So please do head to the Levant X website, click the donate button and buy us a coffee or sign up for a membership and get exclusive content from people like Oliver Marsden. So Oli, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sophie. And thank you to the listeners.